take your copy of scriptures now and turn to First John chapter three. First John chapter three. We continue in Paul's letter. I'm sorry, in John's letter, um, as is indicated by the name John. First John uh, chapter four. I'm sorry, verse uh, chapter three. I'll be reading verses 19 to the end of the chapter. 19 to 24. First of First John chapter three. But before we go to the Lord, uh, hear His word uh, read and preached and received, let's ask His blessing upon those things. Let's pray. <clears throat> we pray, Heavenly Father, as we come before You, we ask that You would uh, grant to us that the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, and we confess, uh, dear Lord, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from Your mouth. And so we ask, our dear Father, give us a great appetite for this, Your Word, that it may nourish our souls, even this morning, in the ways of, ever, of eternal life. And so, Lord, all of this to your glory, of course. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you would once again arrest our attentions and grip us by the truth as we hear the voice of our Savior. And we pray this all through him, the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> yes. First John chapter 3, starting verse 19. Please give your full attention. This is the word of God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing upon it at this time. Well, I wonder uh, how many of you trouble, a struggle rather, with believing that you are a true Christian, that you uh, possess a sure salvation and are certain that when you stand before God and his judgment, will be welcomed into heaven to dwell forever. Are you sure about that? Or do you struggle? I venture to guess that if you haven't struggled with the assurance of your faith, that you're saved, you probably know someone who has or does struggle with assurance in this way. John's hearers, because of the situation that they were in, particularly, had consciences that condemned them, and they struggled, <clears throat> even as we do, in the things in our lives, in the failures that we have before God, in our failings before Christ, assurance struggles, condemning consciences. And we realize that those sins that cling so close and that were broken, and we wonder, how could this be true if I'm really a believer? We think, is there freedom from the heart's condemnation that we go through? And if so, where is it? What do we do when our hearts condemn us? How do we find remedy from the heart that condemns? Can we have assurance that we are indeed Christ and that he is truly our Savior? Well, Scripture says that we can. And that because of Christ's forgiveness, we are free from our heart's condemnation. There is freedom. But how? What does God's word here in 1 John tell us how that freedom comes how do we gain this assurance from a troubled heart? Um, our passage this morning 
and next morning or in next weeks. Uh, says we do so by resting in Christ, by requesting of our Father, and by receiving from the Holy Spirit. It's this Trinitarian structure and the reality of this assurance that we can have um, from our God. And so that's the outline of the passage. Uh, our resting in Christ, our making request of the fa- to our Father, and then receiving from the Spirit. Uh, that's the outline of the passage. That's what we're getting at uh, for this and the next week. But I wanted to focus this morning... Uh, on the second way, the middle way that we gain assurance from our struggle, and that is praying to our Heavenly Father, making requests of Him, our God in heaven. <clears throat> and we'll find out in this, uh, the rest next week, we'll fill out the rest of this outline of this passage, but I wanted you to know where we're going. Um, and so, what is it of this prayer that we're talking about, uh, that I'm talking about, The Scripture tells us about? Well, we know that prayer is one of the most glorious privileges that the people of God have. Um, 19th century theologian referred to prayer as the vital breath of the Christian soul, the the, the Christian's vital breath. Many who are opposed to our faith criticize us when we do so, when we talk about praying as being removed from reality. And they say praying is is wishful nonsense to someone who's not there. It's a denial of reality. They say that help Relief, rescue from the troubles that we find ourselves in, it doesn't come from God, but from ourselves and what we do. We are the rescue of these things. And of course, the unbeliever can pretend this and think this, but what do they do with their guilt and sin and the shame and the stain of their own failings and their own sins? What do they do? Well, these things rot for them the mind and the body, and they wreak havoc on them. And they medicate themselves, and they numb themselves, and they escape with all kinds of ways, and they bury them in whatever their idol of the day is, whether it's pornography or social media or politics, whatever it might be. And it ends up that the man or woman who thinks that they are without need and are self-sufficient are the ones who are the most foolish of all, because they've deceived themselves, saying, I have no problem, I can solve this on my own, which, of course, is insane, because it's like a man covered in orange paint trying to wash it off with orange paint. Or as uh, Cornelius Van Til would liken this to, it's like a man uh, in the ocean trying to climb out of the ocean on a water made of ladder, a ladder made of water. It's not going to happen. And they deny God, or their view of God in prayer is distorted and confused and twisted. I remember years ago watching a I think it was a movie, and the opening scene was set, and there was this beautiful little girl kneeling at her bedside with her hands folded, praying aloud. When you listen to what she was saying, the girl is praying to Santa Claus. And this really depicts how many in our culture view prayer. But as believers, we know how wrong this thinking is. We know that our prayers come right out of the real stuff of life. And we know the, the, the true and the living God to whom we are praying. And it's in our suffering, and it's in our fear, and it's in our stresses. In our lives, we cry out to the Lord. And I wanted this morning, because there are parallels, uh, to look for a moment at Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 3. Psalm 3, and see something of this wonderful privilege that we have of our making our request to God, of our praying to Him, crying out to Him. And so Psalm 3 We have this unique situation that's going on, and we see that the things of life, the stuff that he's going through, mentioned even in the title of the psalm, 
right? What does it say? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Right? And we're reminded, and we know that when a believer prayers, it comes right out of the reality of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. And like David here, as he fled for his life from his son, is one of those instances. And it's in the times of our lives like these that our prayers arise and we call out to God. And of course, it's God's people, his praying people who are most involved in living, most involved in truly living. And so so we'll look uh, a little here for some time at David, um, who has been described as praying on the run or praying on the go, right, as he flees from his son and he calls out to God. And we learn... What God has given us regarding how we can be assured when our hearts condemn us, when doubts come, right? Prayer is for us. It's for you, God's people. And as I mentioned, most of the time, uh, most of us at some time, uh, and some truly struggle, some are plagued with this, this assurance of their faith, wrestling with it. And because of this, precisely what John is talking about, right? He's concerned for these people that he writes to. John, in this first letter, he's concerned about them. He cares for them because he loves them, even as our Father loves us. And uh, as his children, we are his children whom he loves, and he is concerned for us. And so I know I just turned it to Psalm 3, but hear, hear what John is emphasizing briefly. First John 3, um, how he begins that chapter. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. When he appears, we shall be like him. And so we see David here. His situation, we see Absalom. You can read about this if you like later, 2 Samuel 15 and following, I think 15 to 18. And Absalom, his son, has schemed against him and started an overthrow against David, his father, the king. David had to flee from the city of Jerusalem with some of his men, and they were headed for the Jordan River. He has to escape Absalom, who's trying to kill him and to take his throne. And David is in danger, and his enemies are multiplying all around him. They're rising up against him, and they are directly opposed to him. And notice, what is the point of attack? What is at the core of the target of their mockery to David? He says, many are, my, oh Lord, many are my foes, many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. This is what they're attacking. No salvation for him in God. No salvation. Right? What does this mean? Well, in David's context, they're not saying that God is unable to rescue him. That's not what they're saying. They're implying that God will not save David. Right? The, 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 the emphasis is there's no salvation from God for him. God won't save someone like him. He doesn't deserve God's mercies. He's getting what he deserves. Of course, we likely don't go through uh, this kind of ridicule and accusation on the level that David did. But oftentimes we hear this line of reasoning, and when we hear it oftentimes it's coming from our own voice within, accusing us. And that can be the most severe temptation and trial that we face. And even more than our cult, the culture around us, or your unbelieving hostile relatives or coworkers, uh, or your neighbors, often more than that, it's our weak hearts that accuse us. And it can devastate us. There is no salvation in God for me. I'm getting what I deserve. 
God doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm full of shame and guilt and filth. God won't save me. And how do you respond when you hear that voice? How do you respond when you think these things? What do you do? Well, if you're a Christian, what you do when this talks to you, right? And by the way, we have to acknowledge this is not simply a, a temptation and a threat to us when these words come, uh, come, come to us, when these thoughts come to us. It's not merely, not simply a temptation. They're not merely accusations from our weak flesh. Because there is a sense in which it's true. It's true. That, that is that I have no reason to expect God to have anything to do with me. I don't deserve the least of his mercies. And what do you do when you hear this accusing voice from your own conscience, from your own heart, or from others? What do you do? Well, you do what David did. He told it to the God who supposedly didn't want to help him. And this is what prayer is. Right? David's not replying to his critics. He's not replying to them. He's bringing this before God in prayer. And we, we confess that we have nothing in and of ourselves, but only that Christ has bought us and covered us in his own spotless righteousness. And we confess that God, we confess to him that it's alone for his good pleasure that he loves you, that he put his love upon you. It's intimately interested. Uh, he is in every aspect of your life. And that's an amazing thing. You take the pain and the anguish and the distress and the accusations from without and from within, and you place it at the feet of the God who we're told doesn't care about you, and you let him decide. And you trust his truth over the lies of the world and the devil and even your own flesh. And you remember the saying of old, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. There's more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. God is greater than your heart. And so this is something of his situation, right? This danger that he is in, David. And there is this danger that we stand as well, in which we stand. The Lord wants us to know, brothers and sisters, from John's letter, from Psalm 3, from Genesis to Revelation, that he is greater than the world and the devil, and that he is greater than our heart. Right? What did John say in his gospel? I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I know that peace, brothers and sisters. Know it. Know it and praise him for it. And so our hearts condemn us. We're shaky in our faith at times. We also need to know the one in whom we trust, right? The one who protects us. Some, have, some people don't struggle with this as much as others. I think it was John Calvin who, his simple answer was, do you believe? Then you are assured. Simple as that. But not all of us enjoy the glory and certainty of that. But it's true that doubting usually, right, we can be encouraged in some respects. Doubting is usually a sign of life. Dead hearts don't care if they're saved or not. They don't fret about their salvation. They don't care if they're saved or made new. But we need to look to the Lord when, in these situations, who he is and his character, his love. And we notice in the flow of this psalm, <clears throat> Uh, how it builds up, right? What does he say? How many are my foes? Many are rising, many are saying, but you, it's emphatic, you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. A shield around me. There's this beautiful uh, prayer in the book of Zechariah. 
uh, it says, the Lord was a wall of fire around them and the glory in their midst, right? He is a shield around me, he says, David. And notice the turn that takes place. In the face of his danger and threats and the peril that he's in, uh, here is his protection. Here's the one in whom he trusts, right? But you, O Lord, but you, Yahweh. And he goes on to describe this Lord that he's talking about. First, he says, he's a shield around me. Then he says, you are my glory. You are my glory, just like Zechariah. Uh, and this, this, this glory has the, it's the idea of having, having weightiness or heaviness or substance or importance. Right? Sometimes it can mean wealth, but it's the weight and the substance of God. He is the sufficient God. Ultimately, the glory, the only glory and splendor and wealth that we need. We may lose all sorts of things in this world, and we do, that seem to be glorious and attractive and desirable, right, Econ- uh, economically, right, uh, monetarily. We lose our beauty, physical things um, that we value. Our health wanes. We may sorrow that we've sinned and our hearts condemn us. But if we can say to the Lord, you are my glory, you are my all-sufficient, you are all the wealth and all the substance that I need, my heart is satisfied in you. You are my all, Lord, even greater than my doubting, condemning heart. And that is enough, right? That is enough. And we may have starts and fits in life as we, as we stumble and fall in our sanctification, in our growth, in our walk with Christ. Our faith is imperfect until we die. But in our struggle, we see what else God is, right? What does David say next? He says, You are the lifter of my head. You are the one who lifts my head. You are a restoring God. And the idea is to restore joy, right? From being dejected and despondent, the lifter of the head brings back joy. You've probably experienced this as a child or as a parent, right? The mother or father takes the child's head in their hands, right? I'm sure it's happened to you. It says, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And lifts the head, Yahweh is the one who lifts up the head in your, dejection, in your dejection and despondency. He is the one. He's the one that restores. There are many sorrows in this world, but we are to what? We read it earlier. Take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He will make all things right. He has conquered sin and death and Satan himself. As, as you belong to him, he lifts your head and he cares for you. And he promises that where he goes... He goes, right? Where he goes, you will be there as well. And he gives you joy because he gives you not only grace and all the promises that come with that, but he gives you himself. He gives you himself. Some of us may not, some of you may not have had very good fathers. Maybe some of you had bad or really awful fathers. The Lord our God is not a father we need to be afraid of in a fearful treacherous way. It's not a God we need to flinch at or cover our head in fear. He loves you if you are his, if you belong to Christ. And he bids you to come in boldness to him with all of your troubles. He's accessible. He hears. He's a listening God. Right? What does verse 4 say of Psalm 3 there? I cried aloud, right, in all of his stuff that was going on. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Right? We have access to this God. He's an accessible God. He's a God you can pray to. Do you avail yourself, brothers and sisters, of this glorious reality, this incredible benefit that you have in your doubt, in your burdened heart? 
Do you know that as God's sons and daughters, you have access, bold access to this God, the creator of the universe, the author of your life and your soul? If this is the case for David, how much more for you who belong to Jesus Christ? We don't stop. Remember the structures and the mechanisms that were built up to keep you away from the Holy of Holies. Because of your uncleanness, all these, these, this, this, this structure, right? And so when we go to the Lord, we don't stop at the courtyard. We blow past it to the altar, right? The, the, through the dividing, uh, the dividing curtain, right? Right into the Holy of Holies and enter with boldness and full confidence because Jesus Christ is there. We belong to him. And when we say, you, my Lord, you are my protecting, sufficient, restoring, accessible God, and we focus on that, we focus and fix ourselves on the nature of God uh, in the midst of our troubles and problems. This is what leads to the peace that we can know in the midst of it all. This God whom we love and adore and belong to. This is important, right? It's why we see in this psalm, uh, this is what we see in the psalm in verses 3 and 4, what's going on. And so when you have something that focuses your attention, that grips your vision, that will put focus where, focus where it needs to be. We need to be, yes, obsessed with God, brothers and sisters. He needs to be the delight and concern of our lives, the focus of our hearts and minds always, and our longing for him. And when we focus on this God in all of his glory and protection and access, and rest, uh, all the, the rest of the stuff of our lives, they won't overwhelm us, and it won't suffocate us. It perspectivizes us in the reality of who he is and who we are before him. And the most practical thing you can do for living a Christian life amidst your doubts and fears is to remind yourself and focus yourself upon the nature and character of God, his mercy and provision in Jesus Christ. And the more God-centered you are and Christ-centered in your thinking and worship and devotion, the more properly you will be able to endure your troubles, right? You'll be able to deal with those things because your mind is right, as it were, it was that focus here that we see uh, in the psalm. And David reminded himself of what kind of God that he had. And again, there's no easy way to do that except to do what David did. In the midst of your doubting and your trials, you turn in prayer and you say, but you, Lord, you. And then you describe to him and to yourself what sort of God he is, right? The Lord is all those things, and he's also the protector in whom we trust. And we trust in him because he's given us faith to do so. He is our peace, Paul says in Ephesians. He is our hope and our love and our assurance. Christ is our life. He must be. He is truly only the only satiation for our souls, the only satisfaction for what we need. We need help with our fears that we have and the peace that we have in the midst of trouble and oppression and opposition. And after we focused on the Lord and his beauty and his love and his might and his care, Peace comes, right? Peace comes. And assurance grows. Even if it moves in millimeters, it grows. And in all of that, brothers and sisters, we commit our anxieties and our worries to the Lord who loves us and died for us. That's what the Bible tells believers to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Even as Paul says, we cast them before the Lord in the peace of God, the God of peace that surpasses all of our understanding. And as hard as, and as contrary to our flesh as that is, we are to let go of our grip on executing 
these things ourselves, even our own vengeance, right? We don't take vengeance in ourselves because we are full of sin. We commit it to the Lord who is perfect and holy and righteous and just, and he will do it because he is so. The Lord cares for you, his people, and he will carry you to your promised end. And that's the most comforting and glorious declaration, right? How he, uh, what he says here, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. It belongs to him. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, not to the enemies of your faith, not to your doubting heart, not to Satan, but to God himself. We need the blessing and the protection and salvation of our great God and Savior, not only for our eternity, but for all of our lives, every step that we take. God doesn't stop caring for you, his people. Once the big problem is taken care of, right, your justification, you're made right before him, you're standing before the Father. He cares about you ongoingly, but every day of your lives, day to day to day. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget the Lord is our great protector amidst the danger and doubting and perils that we have in this life. He is to be praised in the midst of these things, as well as in our, uh, the joy that we can have in this life. And he is our very peace. He is our peace. Let us praise and cry out to and trust and rest in him, ever more aware of his care and rescue and protection. May we live in more and more awareness of his character, for who he is, and the victory and the glory that he's won for you in Jesus Christ as well as the promise to sustain you throughout all the days of our lives, even unto glory. Praise him, brothers and sisters. May we never forget, and may he indeed satisfy and apply the balm of his grace to our hurting hearts, and we'll be joyfully lifted in our lives. And may he do so every day of your life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for the wonder of salvation Lord, we pray that you would indeed help us to believe the things that you tell us in your word. Help us to believe that we've died to sin and been raised to walk in the newness of life. Lord, help us to realize that the cell door to the bondage of sin is open and let us walk out of it boldly. Lord, trusting in you, believing the gospel, following our Savior, Jesus. In his name that we pray these things. Amen.